You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go to Ira Jersey. Ira uh, Jersey, our chief U.S. rate strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence. That's right. And Ira, what do you think here? I'm calling your Federal Reserve. Your Federal Reserve looks at the inflation data we got today. What do you think it took away from that data? Hey, happy uh, happy holidays, guys. Um, last uh, last hit of the year here. Um, you know, I, I think the Fed uh, takes away that we're, we're continue to be on trend for lower, but still not low inflation growth. And and when you look at a lot of the data today, like like I. I I wound up crunching some numbers, and when you look at the trends just from the last three months in things like personal income and then you use both the, the core and the headline PCE deflator, what you realize is actually real incomes, at least at the aggregate level, are actually growing now. So I so saw this, that, and so is yeah, that the first yeah. month we've seen that, Ira? Because I, I, somebody uh, just so brought that to my attention this morning. It's the second month, um, uh, but yes, it's it's actually, you, you know, and, and, and that, that might actually be a – um, that actually might be a worry for the Federal Reserve because w- when you have personal incomes that are higher than uh, than inflation, then that means that you, basically your real disposable income is higher, and that means people actually have more money to spend. Which going into the holiday season might have been a, a, a pretty good uh, you know pretty good action potentially for for holiday shopping. When you know now all of a sudden for the first time you know basically in a year and a half that we've seen uh we've seen incomes higher than than inflation. Hmm. Um now by the way, personal you- income uh came in a growth of 0.4%. The estimate was for 0.3%, so a tick better. Personal spending came in with a growth 0.1%. The estimate was for 0.2%, so a tick worse. If this happened in my household, I think my wife would love me again. <laughs> And but keep in, keep in mind that um, you know it's hard to judge some of these things on a one month basis because you know they are seasonally adjusted and when we look at things like spending um, you know over the uh, pandemic period uh, you actually had people you know buying more online and and doing more of their holiday shopping in November than you did in December so so even though you know it was only up slightly um, you know compared to the last couple of years it was still a pretty ro- reasonably robust number um, on a nominal basis for for November spending. Um, and keep in mind, also, October was revised up a tenth. So when, when you average those out, it was basically as expected. Um, and, and uh, you know, importantly, um, you know, with spending, uh, you know, continuing to grow even a little bit, 
um, you know, that will continue to buoy prices in some sectors, and in particular services. So, so again, digging deep into this data and looking at things like core services spending uh, and core goods spending, goods prices have just been plummeting, and goods prices are not growing anywhere near where they were earlier in the year. But services spending continue, and services prices continue to be growing at a reasonably good clip. And, and because services spending and, and prices tend to be stickier, um, that means that inflation might not come down as quickly as the Fed would like. And again, this is the reason why I think that the Fed might be pretty reluctant to cut interest rates later in the year, even if we have a reasonably... I got to say, you're singing from the same hymnal as Barry Knapp, with whom I spoke earlier this morning. Do you know this guy? Do you know Barry from his time at BlackRock and... I know he's a, I know he's a soccer guy. I mean, I talked to uh, you know I know Rick Reader and some other people at at, uh, at BlackRock, but I don't know Barry. Yeah, um, not not not. Well, he's a Jersey guy. I'll, I'll I'll get you two guys together. You can talk soccer. Not anymore. So. Hey. Now he's out in Vail. I know. And yeah. so all right, so he went to Vail the first drop of a pandemic, and he he's never <laughs> he's coming never back. Come he's back. never <laughs> coming back. So anyway, so Ira, you know. I, I want to get I, I want to get his take if we could on yeah. Where, where does the market expect rates to go? Um, you know, we hit four and a quarter on the 10 year, what, two months ago about, uh, and uh, people are asking, was that the peak? Was it not? What, what's the consensus for the, uh, path of the 10 year yield in 2023? So, it, so actually there's, there's kind of two camps. It's very, it's a pretty bifurcated market. Very few people think that the, that, that 10-year yields are going to stay where they are right now. Um, so you have a, a camp that's led by like Goldman Sachs and, and some of my, my, my friends over there calling for yields upwards of, of four and a quarter to four and a half percent again and, and making new yield highs in the 10-year. Um, I think that's predicated in part on the idea that the Fed's actually going to be too easy and that the economy is going to hold up much better um, than, than others think. And, and we're probably on the other end of the spectrum, actually. We, I actually think that we're going to see yields below 3% by the end of next year in part because not because we're going to be necessarily in a deep recession next year, but that the market's going to price for very deep interest rate cuts and, and a slower economy come 2024 and 2025. So it's really a timing issue. And, and because of that, long-term interest rates can fall, whereas short-term interest rates might um, fall at a much slower pace just because um, the, uh, the, the, the economy, the market's going to anticipate very slow growth and much lower inflation on a forward basis. All right. World Cup is over. Now what do I do for my soccer fix? Well, obviously Wednesday night you missed the MLS uh, college super draft. Um, oh, did where, I? You know, there were a lot of players from USL League 2 who were uh, taken by MLS teams. And um, uh, unfortunately, the, the R2 players that were draft eligible uh, and were on the draft list did, did not get drafted. Um, although some big news about one of them it will come out in the next week or two. Um, but importantly, I think, you know, for soccer-wise, Monday is uh, Boxing Day. So there's always a full slate of games in England ah. on Boxing Day. So that will be the next, uh, the next round of fixtures for people to watch. Fixtures, that's games, I think, or schedule or something like Who that. Who knows? I don't know. Soccer All right, Ira talk. Jersey, he does the interest rate stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. He also is our resident soccer person, tells us kind of where we need to focus uh, our soccer interests uh, around the world. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? 
You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Nathan Dean, Senior U.S. Policy Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and Joe Matthew. Most of Bloomberg sound on. Joe's in the studio, as a matter what of fact. All-star panel. I know. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. I mean, they have to deal with the sausage making that is Washington, D.C. And, and Nathan, let me start with you on, on the policy side. Isn't there like a big bill winding its way through Congress, like about funding the government and stuff like that? Give us the latest. Yeah, so, you know, this is the government spending bill, also known as the Omnibus. It's $1.7 trillion in overall spending. Uh, the Senate's already passed it. The House has to go through today and try and get it out. Um, but if not, uh, the, the Senate has given them until December 30th in terms of a short-term funding. What this bill really does, though, for markets is really two things. One, there's the funding angle, and then there's the policy writer angle. On the funding side, you know, this gives 60, or $76 billion an increase to the defense industry. The defense industry likes this. Obviously, if they hadn't, uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense had said earlier this year or earlier this month that there were going to be problems. Other things in here, additional $820 billion to speed up the CHIPS Act. So if you're in the semiconductor industry, uh, this is actually going to speed up the $52 billion that they approved earlier. And then on the policy writer side, look, there's tons of policy writers, but the one thing that we're really t- focused on right now is it's mandating uh, employers to auto-enroll their employees in 401Ks. So if you're a 401K provider, there could be quite a bit of increase in assets under management uh, because you're going to be forced to contribute 3% in your first year all the way up to 10%. So there's a lot of stuff in this bill, but uh, we do think it's going to pass and we're not going to have a government shutdown. And forced, well, you mean it'll just be automatic unless you opt out? That's, that's correct. Okay. Joe, how's this playing out politically? I mean, um, the... Uh, the Congress seemed to start splitting a little bit in terms of support for Ukraine, for example. There were a few Republicans who were vocally against at least continuing it at these levels. And it also strikes me that so much spending, I think it's $1.7 trillion in total, could mm-hmm. be inflationary. Could be inflationary or stimulative, according to some, although we tend not to think of budgets that way since you know, it's not a stimulus bill. But either way, yes, there are a lot of Republicans who are really upset about the way this was done. Uh, it's not a continuing resolution, as as we were just discussing here. This is an omnibus, which is uh, which is a, a which is better. Um, and Republicans scored a couple of major wins here. Mitch McConnell, for instance, signed off on this early, having uh, succeeded in getting a, a massive increase in defense spending. In fact, even more than was seen uh, for domestic spending. And and he was whipping his members early and often on this. You have to remember the period of time that we're in right now is Republicans prepare to take the majority in the House. There's a lot of bluster. Kevin McCarthy was supposedly whipping against this bill. But if this had not passed, that would have been a huge problem for him. He was saved by the bell. He doesn't have to worry about now crafting a budget in a divided Congress a couple of weeks from now. Hey, Joe, aside from the the policy issues, when we get back to them, is there a postmortem here with a, a day or two in, in a rearview mirror 
about the January 6th committee and kind of just give us an update on where we are and what might be next steps. Well, they dropped the report last night, which is a pretty yep. big deal. This is, by the way, that omnibus, 4,155 pages before the amendments. Oh, I'm all over that. This yep. report is 814 pages. So you guys have a lot of a reading to do this to weekend. Um, look, it's, uh, it's a deep dive with a lot of information you've already heard. But it also adds more, and they're going to continue adding more to this report in terms of uh, the, the verbate from these actual witness uh, interviews, the testimony that we haven't heard or seen in their entirety. But there's a list of 11 recommendations, and I'll bring you back a couple of days because this has been a really busy week. Remember, we had that final meeting uh, just a few days back in which they voted to refer criminal charges against Donald Trump, John Eastman, and some others. This is the follow-on, the final document here that they believe is for posterity, the historical document people can look back many, many years now, as opposed to the Department of Justice investigation that may well end in criminal charges. But the 11 uh, recommendations include one. We already checked this box and it brings us back to the omnibus bill. That's the Electoral Count Act that clarifies that a vice president does not have authority to reject electoral slates. There'll never be another Mike Pence. There'll never be another January 6th, at least the way we saw it now that this is in there. All right, that's so that's interesting. Eight hundred pages. I'll get to that as soon as 814. possible. Sure. Yep. Eight hundred fourteen. How many did you say were in the omnibus? Four thousand one hundred fifty-five, and it's pretty sick that I know that. Four thousand. <laughs> well, four thousand one hundred fifty-five mm-hmm. pages. Nathan's all over that. Well, Nathan, here's what <laughs> I'm wondering. Read it last night. If it goes, if they pass it around the Congress, does anybody? No. Can they slip in a few pages about the state and local tax deduction? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. They had about 15 amendments in the Senate yesterday. A couple of them did pass. So there will be more pages than that. And, you know, if, if you like the back room uh, sausage making here, the only reason why the House didn't get the vote on it overnight, which was the original plan, everyone was supposed to be gone by now, yeah. is because this thing is so big, they have to actually have this transcribed on the parchment. And it takes all night to do that. So they didn't actually receive the bill until just about now. And then the House will do its work to, to pass this along. All right. So, Nathan, let, let's be honest here. Let's just, I don't know, assume this gets done, because if for no other reason, the House wants to get to the airport and get back Wait, home. Wait, will, will there be any uh, safe banking in this, Nathan? Uh, Are we going to no, see? The, no, there's not. The Safe Banking not Act nothing, it, it didn't, uh, didn't make it into the bill. That's a big blow for the folks that are invested in MSOS, ETF, and marijuana pot stocks. Uh, There actually was a writer in this bill that prohibits states in the District of Columbia from using federal dollars to actually implement legalization of marijuana state initiatives. So this this is going to go to next year. Who's the fun police? (laughs) Who adds that kind of thing? You know, it was probably some, uh, probably there was one person who really wanted that in there and they got it in there. But when it comes to safe banking, when it comes to pot and marijuana and legalization and so forth, I think legislators are going to hit a great pause. Uh, I don't see much momentum going into next year because, you know, the House, or, I'm sorry, Republican leadership uh, showed that they didn't want to actually support this. M- Senator McConnell made a pretty stringent sta- statement about that. And, you know, I just don't see the political uh, capital being used to push this over the line. So uh, it's certainly feasible. It's got to take time to cook. It may pass a year from now, but uh, I just don't see anybody paying attention to it uh, outside of April 20th when all these issues pop up. What, what, what's your take, Nathan? What's your take on salt? Is there any chance it's ever coming back? Uh, you know, it, it's and I, I'm saying I'm apologizing to the folks in New York and New Jersey right now. But there are a lot of tax issues, and I will say, so really, I don't think it's going to come back. But 
I will say that the Trump era tax cuts for consumers are going to expire in 2025. And that means that people have already started talking about what can we do to extend those or make those permanent. And, you know, I'm sure that the great, you know, uh, policymakers from New York and New Jersey are going to be inserting salt into those discussions. Hey, Joe, give us a sense of the next two years. Are, are we just in 2024 mode already in Washington? Oh, we are. I mean, the the idea, of course, we know that Joe Biden, he's going to be, a, I, I believe, somewhere very warm with the family uh, the next week. And they're going to be talking about that. And it's expected he will announce his candidacy shortly after the holidays. So it's on. I mean, Donald Trump's already running. You're going to have Joe Biden out there and that's going to that's going to drive the conversation. And in this divided government, it's, it's right. I mean, there's there's very little that we're going to be passing through here. And, and in terms of the Safe Banking Act, that thing passed the House 15 times. Ed Perlmutter <laughs> is now retiring without safe banking, which became his his career long cause up there. But to, to get that through Mitch McConnell's chamber and, and seeing Kevin McCarthy coming in the House, it's highly unlikely. Wait, Joe, has a sitting president ever been primaried? I mean, is is it possible that Biden says I'm going to run and then the Democrats put someone else forth? That would be shocking. I can't imagine who it would be uh, because, you know, look, there's a lot of talk about the Democratic bench being a little bit thin. Uh, when you start talking about the Gavin Newsom's and some of the other players in the Democratic Party who might actually be able to stage uh, a challenge, Pete Buttigieg, for instance, they could use a couple of years to cook. You know, yeah. that that's probably a 2028 story we're looking at. <laughs> Great stuff. Joe Matthew, Washington correspondent, and he's host of Sound On. That's uh, weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. He's with Bloomberg News down in our D.C. studio. Uh, Nathan uh, Dean, he is our senior U.S. policy. There's a lot of Nathans, and we're going back to him. Nathan Dean, senior U.S. policy analyst, who actually speaks with great enthusiasm about policy stuff. I, I don't know how he gets that enthusiasm. But I'm so glad we have him. I'm so glad we have him because he's all over that stuff. He's with Bloomberg Intelligence based in Washington as well. Brutal, brutal year for stocks when you look in the rear view. Uh, brutal year for bonds as you look in your rear view. But one area that actually cranked in 2022 was energy. I'm looking, you know, you look at some of these names up 50, 60, 70%. I want to get a sense of have I missed it? Did I miss that trade? Or is there still something left? We're going to break it down with David Dietz, senior investment strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management, and Rob Thummel, portfolio manager, Tortoise. Uh, they're joining us on the phone. Rob, let's start with you here. Okay, I'm a little late to the party. I admit it. Have I missed the energy trade here? Not only so, Paul. I think you still have plenty of time. If you just look at the energy stock, you know, and you look at what investors want, they want uh, dividend yields and, and high free cash flow. And the free cash flow yield of the energy sector is still probably double that of the S&P 500. So, and the dividend yields probably double or or, or maybe triple the the, the uh, in some in some stocks of the S&P 500. So. There's still plenty of room to run. The, the sector's still trading a discount to, to historical norms and, and have, you know, will have deliver some very solid earnings uh, into next year. So I still think there's a lot of opportunity in energy. Interesting. So, David, how, what, do you, what do your clients, when they, when they think about the energy space, you know, it's, it, back in the day when I started, energy was a really, really big sector. Everybody wanted to talk about it. And then it really just shrank in size in terms of makeup of the S&P 500. How do you and your clients, you know, think about energy in the portfolio? 
Well, so in the last few years, there's no question about it that because of the poor performance of energy stocks, plus I think ESG concerns, energy was uh, not considered to be a favored area in people's portfolios. But quite frankly, we are, for the reasons that our other guests talked about, uh, continue to be optimistic on the area. I mean, you look at the backdrop. The backdrop is policymakers, activists, and so forth are discouraging further production of of fossil fuels. But the fact of the matter is that the production decreases, I think, will be faster than consumers can wean themselves off of using fossil fuels for their cars to heat their homes. So you're going to have this mismatch, and that typically means prices have to rise higher to even out the reduced supply and continuing demand. Rob, what do you think about the demand? I mean, this is the first time in a long time I can remember that we actually have a debate about whether or not demand is going to rise or not. There's so many issues around energy, um, but the main one, I guess, China, is the reopening going to boost demand or is everyone there going to get COVID and they're all going to stay home? Yeah, yeah. And well, I think we've We've seen we've seen that playbook play out already here in the U.S. to a certain extent. So probably in the short term, there's probably some challenges. Clearly, some challenges in China as as the economy uh, and, and the people start to to open back up. But longer term, what you do know is that China is a, a big driver of of demand for for, for all energy, in, in particular oil and and natural gas to a large extent. So if, if you look into next year, at, at some point in time, you, you know, in in 2022, Chinese demand for for oil was actually negative. We haven't had negative oil growth. Um, out of China for for decades, and so uh, likely see pretty strong demand growth at some point in 2023 or into 2024 out of China, and and that will really uh, be the driver of, of of likely higher oil prices um, going forward in the next in, in 2023 and into 2024. Hey David, you know when we talk about energy and energy stocks, you know the conversation really over the last four or five years has had to include discussions about ESG, environmental, social, and governance. How do your clients think about ESG? Is it front and center for them, or is it just you know invest wherever you, wherever you get the best returns? Well, I I think our typical client wants to do well with their portfolio if possible, and for many years, of course, you know the tech stocks did so well, which had higher ESG ratings, and so you could outperform and score high on those ESG scores. But now what we've seen the last 18 months is the ESG portfolios are starting to fall short. And that's where people are getting a little bit nervous here and taking another look at it. I think the other thing is this key Russia-Ukraine conflict. You know, the, you know, the question is, of course, is do you want to, you know, support commodities and so forth, do things that could, in effect, support Ukraine? Um, and how's that going to conflict with your ESG uh, concerns? So I think at this point, people are getting a little bit more neutral on those ESG concerns. Are we looking at uh, are we looking at stock prices of the companies that pull this stuff out of the ground, refine it and ship it, sell it to us? Are they rising or have they risen commensurate with um, the underlying commodity? Rob? Well, so, so that's a good question. So if you look at oil prices, they're actually lower than they were last year. But yet, as you highlighted, all those stocks across all the energy sector are, are much higher. Uh, so I think we've always wanted as investors that there to be a disconnect between the price um, and, and, and the actual stock performance. And then what I mean by the, the commodity price. And because, you know, the underlying energy sector is going to be driven. It's really essential. It's going to continue to increase. 
as as demand for as, as really GDP and population grows. And uh, these energy companies now that they have just over the last couple of years shifted their focus to capital discipline and focused on returning money to shareholders. Um, that will mean there's less of an emphasis on the commodity price itself, especially for uh, stocks like pipeline stocks that, that have that are less sensitive to commodity price fluctuations in terms of their cash flows. Hey, David, as we think about 2023, um, what are you suggesting to your clients in terms of on the equity sector allocation? Is it more cyclical, like maybe an energy uh, investment or more growthy, whether it's technology or healthcare? How are you thinking about that at this stage? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, fundamentally, we're kind of bullish, actually, coming into 2023. It's very rare to have two negative years back to back. Let's look at that. Yep. And, and we do we do think that, you know, interest rates need to be coming down. Inflation seems to be softening. The Fed's still a problem. But ultimately, they're going to be driven by the data. And I don't think um, the Fed is going to dictate the economy. And we are also a little bit more optimistic that we're not going to have a hard landing in recession. So we actually think the energy, for all the reasons we've talked about, looks good here. But certainly, you've got some opportunities in some of the growth and tech sectors where, you know, some blue chip names are down 60, yeah. 70 percent. You got to take a look at that as well. Hey, Rob, you know, I, I don't, you know, focus that much on the energy space, but I guess what I do know is, okay, we're, the world's moving to ESG, but what I, I think we've learned over the past year, and maybe it's been exacerbated by Ukraine, is we still need the fossil fuels, and we're probably going to need them in size for decades, you know, plural. And and gas is probably and, the cleanest, and, right? And Yesterday we were talking to Danny yes. Rice. Yes. Um, at, at Rice Acquisition Corp. And his brother, Toby, runs right. EQT. Yeah, it was a great conversation. So, Rob, as an equity investor, how do you get conviction about owning energy when, man, I'm just not sure how the world views this migration to, you know, green energy? Yeah, well, you're talking to the right guy and Toby Rice. And, and we and so, so from a big pers picture perspective, you know, EQT is the largest producer of natural gas in the U.S. And we're big fans of natural gas in general and the potential that natural gas has. It's been proven to be decarbonizing. That's you know, increased use of natural gas displacing coal is part of the reason why U.S. carbon dioxide emissions have declined in the last uh, 10 years. And, you know, you can take this same playbook and apply it to, to China and, and India and, and, and similar things will happen. The other, the other factor in the energy sector is it's not an either or. It's an, these, these energy companies have, have actually stopped resisting uh, trying to decarbonize and actually embrace yep. decarbonizing. So there's a lot of other interesting things going on at the energy companies in particular with regards to carbon capture and hydrogen development, uh, while uh, while they continue to provide the, the essential products that are needed for us to, to continue to, to live every day. All right. So, David, as we think about 2023, right here, right now, are, do your clients want you aggressive? Um, well, they certainly – well, the – the sentiment is not good, but it's my job to lead them in the right direction. Yep. And I want to be aggressive here because I think with the stock market down about 20%, with interest rates starting to stabilize, people are going to do well uh, next year. The time to be a little bit more aggressive is when your clients are a little bit skittish and, quite frankly, vice versa. All right, David, great stuff. As always, really appreciate it, David Dietz, uh, PPAC Private Wealth Management. Hey, Rob, real quick, I got to ask you, MBA from Kansas. Undergrad from K State, what do you do when they play on the on the football field? Who do you who do you root for? It's, it's pretty simple, Paul. My wife went to the University of Kansas as well, so so my <laughs> allegiance falls with them as a result of 
being married. So it's, it's a right, good, good choice on my behalf as well. Good stuff, smart man. We, we, we understand that. Rob Thummel, Senior Portfolio Manager, Managing Director at Tortoise Capital, joining us with David Dietz at PPAC Private. Just getting kind of a overview of the energy space. Boy, it's been one of those sectors that just really had a great year. And it's interesting, as Matt pointed out, you know, we've had gas flat. I mean, oil prices flat year over year, but those stock prices are up 50, 60, 70 percent. So kind of a decoupling there. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. One of the things that keeps coming back to me is don't we need like a lot of rare earth materials to kind of make the batteries and some of these components? And and a lot of folks are even telling me that's a risk because a lot of them come from Africa and other places that may or may not be accessible to us as we may think. Zane Kalin, he's the CEO and director of Infinity Stone Ventures. Uh, he joins us here. Uh, Zane, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us what you guys are up to at Infinity Stone. Where, where, where do you fit into this equation? Well, no, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, effectively, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that for all of these initiatives that are being funded by government incentives and private industry investment and just this whole EV push towards EV manufacturing and building supply chains in North America, there really does need to be a lot more supply on the critical mineral, mineral space. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're exploring for critical mineral uh, deposits um, in North America, primarily in Quebec and Ontario, um, also in other parts of the U.S. as well. But as you said, like China, China and Africa really are kind of the engine of growth in the critical mineral space, whether that be lithium or rare earth metals, etc. All of these metals come from primarily Africa or China. And if they're not uh, from Africa, if they're not from Africa, they're being refined in China. So I think what we see is that, by the way, uh, Zane, is that the issue? So um, rare earths, I don't know what they are, like neodymium or whatever. And lithium and cobalt are more of the critical metals that you're talking about. These things are not just in abundance in China underground, right? We have them here underground. What I understand is that it's just that they have... Uh, the refining capacity in China, and we, as a country or as a continent, haven't invent haven't invested in that. Correct. Yeah, and and, and beyond that, we haven't even invested in um, a lot of the pieces that are necessary to even exploit these mineral deposits that we do have in North America. But I think every day you see this is changing, and with the IRA and um, numerous in, um, initiatives in Canada as well, there's considerable opportunity to invest in these spaces. And you hear people like Elon Musk talk about the the uh, Lithium refinery and lithium develop uh, lithium project development are is a license to print money. I think is how he described it earlier this year. So explain so, explain the IRA for those listening. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. 
Um, and I guess part of that bill allows for a $7,500 tax credit for certain electric vehicles, right? What, what, what are the criteria that um, need to be met in order to get that tax credit? Well, so that's one big piece of it for sure is that a lot of the, I think it's the uh, super majority of the minerals going into the car, um, critical minerals that includes lithium, um, rare earth, uh, nickel, cobalt, etc., have to be manufactured in countries or have to come from countries that um, the U.S. has friendly trade relations with. Um, so effectively, that means the West. And really today, that's pretty much impossible. <laughs> there isn't really a car today on the road that would actually qualify for that in the U.S. Um, there, there's some consideration for different vehicles and how they were manufactured and where they were manufactured that may be eligible. But until there's a little bit of clarification around those rules, it's going to be really tough um, to be able to meet that criteria effectively. But kind of taking a step forward than that, the IRA also has a lot of um, provisions and investment for grants and tax credits and just direct general investment in companies that are um, developing critical mineral projects. And I think that's the big opportunity that we see is that you're not only do you need to have the end consumer is going to see the benefit of this with tax credits, but these companies are able to get a considerable investment um, from, gov- from government spending. And if you look at what's going on with rising interest rates, et cetera, in kind of the macroeconomic climate, there really is no other sector that the government's pouring money into like this. And I think if we, we're going into a recession, I think it's relatively obvious at this point, or there's a general consensus around it. I think in that environment, you're going to need to find industries risk industries where there's potential for more direct investment. And that's where you're going to be able to derive economic growth. And I think that's where also investors are going to be able to see potential upside. So Zane, at Infinity Stone Ventures, what type of investments are you guys making? Where are you putting your capital? Yeah, so we're very focused um, on a number of projects in Quebec and Ontario. Quebec and Ontario um, are two of the best mining jurisdictions to work with, work in in the world. I think the Fraser Institute rates Quebec as number six and Ontario is number 11. Um, just very good rule of law, obviously, being in Canada. But then beyond that, there's really great investment opportunities. And then beyond that, we have great mineral deposits and great opportunity for exploration. So there's been a number of significant discoveries over the past, call it two years, in, in um, Quebec and Ontario. And we see a great opportunity to further develop those, invest in those, um, build out resources, and then eventually be in a position to build a really strong supply chain. You're already seeing um, lithium refineries being built in Ontario. You're already seeing big car manufacturers, Mercedes and Volkswagen, signing deals with Ontario mineral exploration companies for supply of lithium to their fact to their factories in Germany. And I think you're just going to continue to see a lot of these initiatives grow, and it really is the best spot to be in. So where does that um, put Infinian, in Infinity Stone Corp right now. Infinity um, yeah, is the company so that, that you're yeah. running, and uh, you've got, I guess, what uh, venture capital rounds behind you. And um, do you go for an IPO? Do you look to well, tie so up with a spec? How's that? How, how? What are your future plans like? Yeah, so we, we actually are publicly traded um, on the Canadian stock exchange currently. Um, we have raised probably in excess of about six million over the past year and a half. Um, so it's relatively small where we, the company just kind of started, was formed in January, really kind of start, really got it going in January. Um, and we put some money in the ground already. We've, we're actively developing two or three resources as we speak. Um, our Rockstone Graphite project is probably one of the more exciting projects, really kind of further down the road in development. And 
Um, we're doing a lot of work to refine that graphite to battery grade, um, all the metallurgical work. We've done a considerable drilling over the past six weeks. Um, and then we have another lithium project, the Buddha lithium project, that we're also actively developing. Um, so, yeah, really, we are kind of our process for the next year is we're going to raise probably another round of capital um, in Q1 of next year. And then with that, we will be uh, kind of deploying it more actively. We're also looking at bringing in some other projects um, in our investing in some other projects in the U.S. So there's a lithium brine project in Death Valley that um, we're in the midst of negotiating on, as well as some other projects um, in the U.S. too. So I think really when you look at kind of the company as a whole, we are an investor. We're a project generator. We're putting money in the ground in all in all of these different initiatives across a different sector of battery metals, not only lithium, but also looking at rare earth and right. um, and graphite, which is graphite's a big, I think graphite's going to be a big trend going into 2023. Um, so yeah, that, that's where oh, we're good at. Good stuff. All right, Zane, great stuff. Appreciate you taking the time here, giving us the update. Zane Kalin, he's the CEO and director, Infinity Stone Corporation, looking at the... Uh, you know, the processing of a lot of these rare metals that are need for that are needed in, you know, a lot of uh, electrical uh, transformation, electric vehicles. Think, for example, some of those uh, components are tough to come by, tough to process, uh, and you want to get a better sourcing. That's kind of what I've been hearing from most of the folks in that industry. So it's good to get Zane's perspective. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.